All right, well, turn with me, please, to the book of Romans. The book of Romans in chapter 3. I want to read for us verses 21 through 26 as we begin to scale the heights of the Mount Everest of the Bible. Um, The Bible is a glorious landscape of God's truth. This letter to the Romans is like the Alps. And this particular passage in Romans is like Mount Everest. Let's begin reading in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This passage is regarded by many to be the clearest statement of the gospel in the Bible. Countless thousands have been saved through the reading, the studying, the hearing, the preaching of these verses. Before there were automobiles and light bulbs and modern conveniences, God was using this passage in particular to save people and to turn people's lives upside down. He's still doing it today. William Cooper, who wrote hymns like There is a fountain filled with blood and God moves in a mysterious way. William Cooper pointed to this passage as being particularly instrumental in his conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Reformation came about because of passages like this one. People could no longer follow the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church when Bibles began to come into their hands and passages like this began to be read and studied and understood. When Luther declared before King Charles V at the Diet of Worms that he could not renounce what he had written because certain Scriptures had had bound his conscience, This passage was almost certainly one of the passages to which he was referring. This passage had bound his conscience. He could not deny the teaching of these verses. It is a glorious passage. It is also a very controversial passage. 
because this passage is a statement of the Gospel and the way that sinners can be saved, this is one of those passages of the Bible that Satan hates most of all. And so it should not surprise us that the 99 Greek words in verses 21-26 through have been some of the most disputed and debated words in the history of the world. This is the battleground of Protestantism versus Roman Catholicism. Does this passage teach justification by faith alone or not? People were burned at the stake because of the position they took on that question. Here is the battleground which many are fighting on today over that word propitiation that you saw in these verses. Could it really be that God would give His Son as a bloody sacrifice to appease His own wrath? Many moderate to liberal professing Christians refuse to believe that God is angry over sin and refuse to believe that God would put forward His own Son as a sacrifice. And so all kinds of shenanigans are played with these words to make them mean something other than what they should most obviously mean. And so we must proceed with care. We must approach these verses with a humble heart. We must sit at the feet of Jesus and ask Him to teach us by His Spirit what these verses mean, to make them clear in our minds, to remove all fogginess. Let's remember our context. Paul has been teaching that all mankind stands under the wrath of God. And why is that true? It's because all are unrighteous in His sight. God is holy, holy, holy. He created us to be holy as He is holy. We have willingly, purposefully rebelled. And we are now sinners in the hands of an angry God. And this is not a small God. He loves all that is good with an infinite love. But He hates all that is evil with an infinite hatred, as He should. When we speak of the wrath of God, we are not speaking of something little. The wrath of God, like the love of God, can be pictured as an ocean. An ocean of oceans. An endless fountain of wrath that will be poured out upon sinners in hell forever. The wrath of God is no small thing. It is endless and it is powerful and it is terrifying. And this is not because God is evil. It's not because God is unjust. It is because God is good. It is because God is fair. And because this is what sin rightly deserves. This is what sinners rightly deserve. So can anything be done Is there any way possible that unrighteous people can be made right before God? Well, there is one way that will most certainly not work. By the works of the law, 
no human being will be justified. That's verse 20. Remember that from last week? That's what we saw last week. Verse 20. That word justified simply means to be counted righteous before God. Justification, that's what we need. We need to be righteous in God's sight. And rule keeping will not do it for you. The Ten Commandments are not a ladder that you can climb into heaven on. You can try to follow the rules of the law in order to merit God's favor, but pretty quickly you'll learn, I hope, that you just don't have what it takes. You cannot use the law to be right before God because the purpose of the law is to reveal how not right you are. And so there it is. We are sinners under the wrath of God. The law shows us our terrible condition, but offers us no help, no remedy. What can we do? How can we be made righteous before God? It's only the most important question ever. Well, verses 21 and 22 begin the answer. It's the good news, folks. The good news. But now... That's two precious words. But now... After everything that's been said about the depravity of man and the wrath of God, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Dear friends, the glorious news of verses 21 and 22 is that there is a righteousness by which we can be saved. What's the main doctrine? Verses 21-22. There is a righteousness by which we can be saved. So let's unpack these two verses by noting five truths about this righteousness by which we can be saved. Number one, the first thing we see is that it is God's righteousness. It is God's righteousness. See that in verse 21? but now the righteousness of God. You see it again, beginning of verse 22, the righteousness of God. The righteousness by which we can be saved is not our own. It is not a righteousness inherent in us. It is an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves. Where in the world can the righteousness be found that will make us right in the eyes of God? Only in one place, God Himself. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His words. Psalm 145, 17. The rock, His work is perfect for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. Friends, when we think about the righteousness of God, we are not simply to think of the fact that there is no sin in Him, though that is true. 
But we're also to think of all that is in Him. We are to think of His patience and His kindness and His goodness, His love and His mercy, His justice and His fairness. Here is a God who makes Himself a father to the fatherless, a a God who gives hope to the hopeless, a God who lifts up the downcast, a God who is a champion of all that is good. God is righteous both because there is no sin in Him and because He is full of goodness. And there's more to it than that. Because you see, God's character establishes the very definition of righteousness. What are we talking about when we're talking about righteousness? Ultimately, we're talking about God. His character. Why is patience righteous and impatience unrighteous? Because God is patient. Anything that is righteous is righteous because it reflects God Himself. There is no outward standard that measures God and declares God to be righteous. God declares Himself to be righteous. God Himself determines righteousness. And so when we speak of the righteousness of God, we are speaking of the very character of God Himself. So somehow, according to verses 21 and 22, though we are unrighteous, we can be saved by God's righteousness. But how does that work? How does that work? Well, hold on. Let's keep going. Second thing. The second truth we see is that the righteousness of God is a revealed righteousness. It is a revealed righteousness. You see it? Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Okay? So the moral character of God, all His glorious virtues, has now been displayed. It's now been revealed. It's now been manifested. How? How do we see the moral character of God? How do we know God's patience and His kindness and His his love? Well, through the law, right? Right? In the law of God. Every time we read the law of God and we read His commands of how He wants us to live, we're seeing more of His character. God has called us to be holy because He is holy. So when God tells us to love our neighbor, He's telling us that He is a God of love. When God tells us to speak the truth, it's because He is a God of truth. When God calls us to be content and not to envy, it's because He is a God at peace within Himself. So this makes sense. God has revealed to us His great righteousness in His law. But wait. Because what does Paul say? He's going a completely different direction. For he says, look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, now now something has happened. There's a new way that God's righteousness has been put on display. There's a new way that people have seen the patience and the kindness and the justice and the love of God. 
What, what has happened between the, the days of the Old Testament and, and the day in which Paul was writing? What has happened in which God's righteousness has been put on display? What is the but now that Paul was talking about? Well, the big change is that Jesus Christ has come. The big change is that the Son of God has come. The righteousness of God has now not only to be seen in the Old Testament, but now it has been put on display in Jesus Christ Himself. The righteousness of God is not only written, carved in stone, but it is now lived out in flesh and blood. The righteousness of God has been displayed in a little baby born in Bethlehem. A teenage boy growing up in Nazareth. A teacher healing and preaching the Gospel. Calling people to repentance. The righteousness of God, the glorious virtues of God Himself have been seen by human eyes in this man as He healed people in His actions, in His attitudes, in His words, even in the tone of His voice. Ultimately, the righteousness of God has been displayed in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ to His Father. An obedience from the heart unto death. Dear friends, what is the righteousness by which we can be saved? It is the righteousness of God that has now been displayed and revealed in the life of Jesus Christ. Do me a favor and turn with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. Let me just show you something here. This is, this is really important. Matthew chapter 3. Begin in verse 13. Matthew 3 and verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all what? Righteousness. Do you hear what's going on here? John the Baptist thinks something is wrong. He thinks Jesus should be baptizing him, not he should be baptizing Jesus. But Jesus says that in order for righteousness to be fulfilled, He must be baptized by John. You see, God was instituting water baptism as a way for a person to identify Himself with God in the Gospel. It is right for those who are gods to profess their faith through baptism. Jesus was coming to establish this ordinance by His own participation. He was coming to show that He is in no way ashamed of His Father, in no way ashamed of the Gospel. Being baptized by John was the right thing for Jesus to do. But dear friends, who was Jesus doing these right things for? Why was it important 
that Jesus fulfill all righteousness. Church, just as Adam represented us in the garden and his fall became our fall, so Jesus represented his people in his life. And the life of perfect righteousness that he lived, he lived for our sake that we would be saved by it. Dear friends, our salvation was at stake when Jesus came to John to be baptized. Have you ever considered that? Had John prevailed and convinced Jesus, you don't need to do this, we would not have salvation. For Jesus would not have done what was right. When Jesus was being tempted and prevailed over Satan those three times in the wilderness, He was not just doing that for Himself. No, He was living out the very righteousness of God in space and time by which we would be saved. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, His heart filled with anguish, praying that God would take this cup from Him. What would have happened had Jesus fled and not fulfilled His mission? He would not have been the righteous one. And His righteousness could not then be given to us for salvation. Friends, the righteousness by which we are saved is the righteousness of God lived out by His Son, Jesus Christ. Justin, I'm still confused. How how, how does that work? How does the fact that Jesus was righteous make me righteous? Hold on. Let's keep looking. Number three, what we see about the righteousness by which we can be saved, we see that, that this righteousness was foretold by the law and the prophets. This righteousness was foretold by the law and the prophets. It's very clear, verse 21. You see it right there in verse 21? Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. And I would suggest that that we begin to get an answer to our question right here. How is it that Jesus' righteousness lived out over those 33 years, 20 centuries ago, how can that righteousness somehow make me righteous, become my righteousness? Well, the Old Testament has something to say about this. After all, the perfect righteousness of God in Jesus Christ as a way of salvation for sinners was preached over and over again in the Old Testament. One example, what kind of lamb was to be sacrificed? Was it not a spotless lamb? A lamb without blemish? Was this not God preaching to His people that the Messiah who would come to accomplish their salvation would be a man of purity, a man of blamelessness, a man of righteousness? When a Jew came to make his sacrifice, he would bring his animal, he would bring what Leviticus declared to be a clean animal. So we have an unclean man bringing a clean animal to the Lord. 
and the animal was treated as the unclean man deserved to be treated. It is sinners who deserve to, to die. The wages of sin is... So the clean animal receives the punishment that the unclean man should receive so that the man can continue to live, though it was the clean animal that had done nothing wrong. He should still be living. The animal had done nothing deserving of death. The man had. But the man would live. The animal would die. An exchange had taken place. The animal took on itself the man's guilt. The man took on himself the animal's sinlessness in the eyes of God. And of course, this was all just a picture. No animal really ever did take on a person's guilt any more than a man ever really did take on an animal's sinlessness. The whole point was to point to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. The Old Testament helps us understand that the reason Jesus came and fulfilled all righteousness was so that that righteousness could be exchanged to us just as our unrighteousness would be given to Him on the cross. His righteousness reckoned to us. Our unrighteousness reckoned to Him on the cross so that God treats us today as though we had lived the perfect life that Jesus lived and God treated Jesus on the cross as though He had lived the sinful life that you and I have lived. The Old Testament teaches that. We'll see more and more of that in the next coming weeks. Let's look at our fourth truth. The next truth we see is that this righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ. This righteousness of God by which we can be saved is given through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, very clear there in verse 22. How can the righteousness which Jesus fulfilled in His perfect life be credited to me? Answer, by faith. When we take hold of Christ, when we entrust our souls to Christ, the great exchange becomes true in our lives. It is by faith that I am counted righteous in God's sight with the righteousness of Jesus. It is by faith that I become treated by God as though I had done all the righteousness that Christ fulfilled in His life. What does God require of sinful men, sinful women, sinful boys, sinful girls? What does God require that we will be right before Him? He requires nothing except that we see our need of Him and run to Jesus. When we stop trusting in ourselves, when we stop trusting in our own good works, when we entrust the state of our souls to Jesus, we are justified, counted right in God's sight. You say there must be something more. There's got to be something else that I must do 
Dear friends, the only thing God calls you to do is to realize there's nothing you can do except accept the gift of Christ. Accept His righteousness, what He has already done for you. J. Gresham Machen, as he was dying at age 55, sent a telegram to his good friend John Murray, the last recorded words he ever spoke as he lay dying, and those words were this, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Jesus Christ. There's no hope without it. We often sing, we're getting ready to sing in a moment, When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. How can we stand faultless before the throne of God? Only dressed in the righteousness of Jesus, freely reckoned to us when we believe on him. But church, we must believe on him. We must have faith. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones describes the man who has faith. He says the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He no longer looks at who he is now. He does not even look at what he hopes to be as the result of his own efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His finished work, and He rests on that alone. He has ceased to say, Ah, yes, I have committed terrible sins. I have done this or that, but I've also done some good things. He he stops talking that way. If He goes on saying things like that, He does not have faith. Or if He says, Oh, there is still terrible blackness within me. I find sin within myself still. How can I possibly save? Well, that's still wrong too. He must not speak like that because he's still looking at himself. Faith speaks in an entirely different manner. Faith makes a man say, yes, I have sinned grievously. Yes, I have lived a life of sin. I was a blasphemer. I was injurious. I was vile. There's scarcely a sin I have not committed. I'm aware of sin within me still. Yet I know that I am a child of God because I am not resting on any righteousness of my own. My righteousness is in Jesus Christ and God has put that to my account. Louis-Jones says the man of faith does not look to himself at all. He looks only, utterly, exclusively to the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friend, where are you looking for salvation? Are you looking to yourself or are you looking only, utterly, and exclusively to Jesus Christ? Salvation is a gift received. It is not a wage earned Every aspect of salvation is a gift. Not going to hell is a gift. Going to heaven is a gift. Having God as your Father is a gift. Having access to Him in prayer is a gift. Having all things work together for your good is a gift. 
Eternal joy is a gift. Eternal peace is a gift. Loving God and serving Him forever in happiness and holiness in heaven, it's all a gift. Salvation is a gift freely offered. All that's required is that you take it. And you take it by grabbing hold of Christ. For in Christ is all your righteousness and in Christ is all your salvation. Jesus is your reconciliation to God. Jesus is your hope of heaven. And so dear friends, take hold of Christ. Call on Him to save you. Rest in His mighty arms. Listen to His wise words. Believe that He cares for you. And never, ever let Him go. Dear friends, as long as you have Christ, you have salvation. As long as you have Jesus, you have the righteousness you need to be saved. Finally, let us note that the righteousness of God is for all who believe. For all who believe. There are no exclusions. The door to salvation is opened wide. Salvation is not just for the Jews. It is for all. Dear friends, salvation is for you if you will have it. What is the great implication of this? The great implication is that you can come to Christ just as you are and be saved. No works of the law required. Isn't that good news? And the reason we call this the gospel? No works of the law required. All the works of the law required have already been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. The very character of God is going to be credited to your account. All you have to do is know your need of it and receive it. Come as you are. You won't stay as you are. (laughs) Um, If you really believe that Christ is yours, if you really believe that Christ loves you, if you really believe that He is saving you, you, you won't stay as you are. But you're called to come as you are. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requires is that you feel your need of Him. And this He gives you. This He gives you. It is the Spirit's rising beam. See the incarnate God ascended. That's Jesus. He pleads the merits of His blood. Venture on Him. Venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus. None but Jesus. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Are you believing? I pray that you are. Let's pray. We'll call all of us now just to speak to the Father in prayer. If you've never believed on Christ, if you've never taken Him as your Savior, if you've never thrown aside all illusions of being good enough and and receive the righteousness of Christ to your account. Today is the day of salvation. Call out on Christ and heaven is all that you need to be right with God. Trust His love for you. Trust that He knows what's best for you. 
turn away from living your own life your own way and just give yourself to him. You will find he is a good master. He's a good ruler. He's a great savior, great shepherd. Trust him. Dear friends, what needs to change in your own thinking, beliefs, or behavior because of what you've heard this morning? Go to God in prayer now. And then in a few moments, we'll respond together in song. Let's pray.